Section 18 of The Day Before Yesterday This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Wolfgang Bass The Day Before Yesterday By Richard Middleton Children and the Sea the sea, like all very large things, can only be intimately understood by children. If we can conceive a sensible grown-up person looking at the sea for the first time, we feel that he should either yawn or wish to drown himself. But a child would take a sample of it in a bucket, and consider that in all its aspects, and then it would know that the sea is a great many bucketfuls of water and further, that by an odd freak of destiny, this water is not fit to drink. Storms and ships and sandcastles and lighthouses and all other sideshows would follow later, but in the meantime the child would have seen the sea in a bucket, and it had previously seen the moon in a looking-glass, so would know all about it. The moon is a variable and interesting kind of lamp. The sea is the buckets and buckets and buckets full of water. I think the stars are holes in a sort of a black curtain or ceiling, and the sun is a piece of brightness, except at sunset or in a mist when it's a whole Dutch cheese. The world is streets and fields and the seaside and our house. I doubt whether a child has any sense of what I may call the appeal of breath. If it is confronted with the fine view, it will concentrate its interest on a windmill or a doll's house, and the seaside is no more than a place where one wears no shoes or stockings, and the manufacture of mud pies becomes suddenly licit. The child does not share the torments of the adult Londoner who feels that there is no room in the world to stretch his arms or legs and therefore wins a pathetic sense of freedom in seeing the long yellow sands and the green waste of the sea. Nor is it at all excited by the consideration that there is a lot more sea beyond the horizon. The extent of its interest in the water is the limit to which it may paddle. Yet, in some dim, strange way, the child realizes aesthetic values more here than elsewhere. I am quite sure it can see no real beauty in its normal surroundings. Sunsets and small houses lit for evening, the shining streets after rain, and even flowers and pictures and dolls are never beautiful to a child in the sense that a story or an idea may be beautiful, but tacitly, for a child has no language to express such things, something of the blueness of the sea seems to seek expression in its eyes, something of the sparkle of the sand seems to be tangled in its hair, something of the sunshine burns in its rounded calves that glow like brown eggs. A child is always a thing of wonder. But on the edge of the sea this wonder deepens until the artificial observer is abashed. A seaside child is no creature to be patted and laughed over. It were as easy to pat the tireless waters 
and to laugh over the grave of a little cat. Children whom one has known very well indeed in town will find new playing fields by the sea into which it is impossible to follow them. Dorothy weighs five stone four pounds at Maida Whale. At Littlehampton the sea wind blows her along like a feather. She has become a wispy spiritual thing, a faint, fair creature, a dance on light feet that would make the fairy girl of a poet's dream seem clumsy by comparison. She is nearer to us when she paddles. The warm sand creeping up through her toes, the silver thread of the coolness about her legs, these things are within our comprehension, though they fall no more within our experience. But when she flings herself along the beach with the wild hair and loose limbs, and the thong of an innocent beckonet, when she bids the gold sands heave up and support her body, tired with play, when she stoops to gather diamonds and pearls from the shore, made wet and smooth by the retreating waves, she is as far from us and our human qualities as a new awakened butterfly. There have been sea-washed moments when I should not have been astonished if she had flung out a pair of mother-of-pearl wings and stood in the blue sky like a child saint in a stained-glass window. There have been other moments when she has approached me with a number of impossible questions in wanton parody of her simple London self. Between these two extremes her moods vary from second to second, and she plays upon them as Pan upon his pipes, and to much the same tune. She loves the long tresses of seaweed and the pink shells, like the nails of her own little hands, and her colored pale, when she is not an architect of sea-girt palaces, is a treasury of salty wonders to climb the rough rocks and call them mountains, to drive back the waves with the chiding foot, and to alter the face of nature with a wooden spade, these were not tasks for the domesticated creature who shares the hearth rug with the cat at home. But the spirit of the sea has changed Dorothy. She is now a little more and a little less than child and she recognizes no comrades but those other nymphs of the sea who hold the beach with the sparkle of wet feet and careless petticoats, who run hither and thither in search of a big adventure while their parents and guardians sleep in the sun. It is hard that age should deprive us of so many privileges, and least of all can we spare the glamour of the sands of the sea. Yet to the adult mind, Brighton Beach, sprinkled with newspapers and washed by a sea, whose surface is black with smuts, brings little but disgust. We insist on having our fairyland clean, and end too often by finding no fairyland at all. The sea, after all, is no more than water that may be caught in a bucket. The sand may glitter on a child's spade, and we who believe that the essential knowledge of the thing is ours are no wiser than the children. 
For me, the sea is a restless and immeasurable waste of greens and blues and grays, and I know that its strength lies in its monotony. It is not the noisy turbulence of storms that moves me to fear, but the dull precision of the tides and the tireless succession of waves. And my impression is no truer than the children's and lends itself less readily to a sympathetic manner of living. I feel that if I could once more hold the ocean in my bucket, if the whole earth might be uprooted by my spade, I should be nearer to a sense of the value of life than I am now. I see the children go trooping by with their calm eyes, not as is sometimes said curious, but rather tolerant of life. And I know that for them the universe is merely an aggregate of details, some agreeable and some stupid, while I must needs depress myself by regarding it as a whole. And this is the proven distinction between juvenile and adult philosophies. If we may be permitted to regard a child's very definite point of view as the effect of a philosophy. Life is a collection of little bits of experience. The seaside bits are pleasant, and there is nothing more to be said. End of section 18